Good morning. It's great to see all you here today, and welcome to those of you joining us online. Last week, I was reading a blog, um, and it just seemed like it would be a great introduction to the message uh, this morning. It was uh, given by a gal named Rachel Bullis. Uh, she has an MA from Moody Bible Institute. Here's what she says. Just listen to this. I'm going to read it uh, verbatim. It will never happen. It's impossible. I'm too broken. Ever feel that way? I know I have in more ways than one. This week I felt like I was spinning my wheels and going nowhere. One step forward, a bazillion steps back. With great effort, produces little results and our lives remain unchanged. Hope dwindles. What about you? What desire have you dismissed as impossible? What dream have you given up on? What area of your life feels impossible to change? When the once possible crosses the threshold of never going to happen, hope is deflated, confidence obliterated, and the probable now has become the impossible. Impossible can't happen out of reach. This is where we find two significant but overlooked characters of the Christmas story. There was a priest named Zechariah, and he, and a, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord, but they had no child. And they were both advanced in years. At the very beginning, Luke goes to great lengths to tell us three important things about this couple. First, Zechariah was a priest, meaning he was part of the highest class of society whose life purpose was to serve Almighty God in the temple. Second, Elizabeth was a woman of highest reputation, also being from a priestly line herself. Third, the couple loved God with all their heart and spent their entire lives following him and doing what was right. But they were childless. When the other women were throwing baby showers, birthday parties, and talking about nursery decor, Elizabeth was silent. While others held their babies, her arms remained empty. While other men boasted about their boys, Zechariah had no heir. No one to carry the family name. No baby to snuggle, no child to train, no little voice to fill the home. Did their hopes start to falter? Did they think maybe this year, only to watch years pass them by? At what point did their possible become impossible and they realized their dream for a child was no longer within reach? And what were the neighbors saying? Were there quiet whispers in the streets as they passed by? In that society, if the couple was barren, then others believed there must be something wrong with them. What sin or secret were they hiding? The shame and stigma they would have carried among neighbors and friends who thought God was punishing them must have been unbearable. Here Luke subtly addresses one of the deepest, most painful questions we face when God withholds a blessing. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Because everyone knows good people get blessed. And if God doesn't give you your heart's desire, then you must not deserve it. There must be something wrong with you. This line of thinking is easy to fall into when your heart is hurting. Elizabeth's neighbors most likely thought it. Job's friends told them right out so. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that this couple did everything right. They were faithful, they were righteous, they served God their entire lives, yet they still failed to see their greatest desire come to pass. When you don't see your heart's desire fulfilled, it doesn't mean you don't deserve it or that God is mad or punishing you. God's blessing is not a direct result of our behavior, good or bad. Sometimes God withholds what is good because he wants to do something greater in our lives. God prefers the impossible. It's his specialty. Is anything too difficult for me? Is my hand too short that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The Christmas story is full of impossibilities. A virgin gave birth. God himself, Emmanuel, came in the form of a man and dwelt among us. On the stage of the impossible, God's miraculous work and power are publicly on display. When 
They were too old when all hope seemed lost, when their time had passed, when their dream had died, when they could no longer do it on their own, when there was no chance, when it was impossible. God showed up. I love that blog. I read it and said, Amen. This is our third message in our Advent series, Miraculous. And today, this title of the message is Christmas, the Impossible on uh, Display. And the message I'm about to share with you is very uh, personal to me. Yes, the year closes, I want to share with you, in the context of the Christmas story, some of my own personal deeply held beliefs about how God moves in the lives of his people. I'm picking up where I left off a couple weeks ago. We're zooming in on a theme that, 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 that God is a miracle-working God. I'm nearing the end of my um, tenure here as your lead pastor. Um, I'll preach a couple more times before uh, that is officially done. And so there's a sense of urgency, as I, I share with you here, here today, um, uh, I just, I, I think for 28 years I've preached with urgency because you just don't know what tomorrow holds, amen? And, and, and people are always seduced into thinking, I got all the time in the world. You don't. You don't have all the time in the world. And today is the day the Lord has made and we're supposed to rejoice in it. But we also have to realize and grab a hold of the Lord when there's an opportune time. And so as I share with you for a few moments, um, just, just hear what God wants to say to your heart. I think what I'm going to share with you is really super relevant. Um, by the way, Paul tells us never to look back, but always to press forward. I, I love Paul's writings. I've read them over. They're hard writings. I, I like hard writings. But never looking behind, we always press into the, into the future. And I got this uh, gift given to me by my mother-in-law here as... as, as uh, my, my tenure's coming to an end here as a lead pastor, and, and it's from J.R.R. Tolkien. I love him. I love Lord of the Rings. Some of you, you know, I know that's divisive. It's a slow-moving movie. I'm going to say that. But, you know, if you've got four hours to, to burn on a Sunday afternoon, there you go, right? Throw on one of the Lord of the Rings, and it is a long endeavor. But he said this, the greatest adventure is the one that lies ahead. And I, I think that's really wise. Now, looking back, we always push forward, Amen as the people of God. And I'm not saying you don't learn from your past. I hear some people say they want to go back to the good old days. I don't. They weren't that good. I don't want a little black and white TV this big that you have to sit there like this to see the little figurines. I like my TV where the heads are bigger than my head. Amen? I don't want to go back. They were good days. I don't want to drive a K car ever again in my life. Most uncomfortable car ever made. The only thing good about it was cheap. But man, you get in the car and you get that right and you go, oh, I need to go see a chiropractor. Now I sit in the car. It's the best seat in the house. Amen? All right. First hour is much more into this. You guys are too young to understand what I'm saying. But man, I, I tell you what, we don't, I don't want to go back. I always want to push forward. And I think that's just a good thing to think. But our big thought today is simply this. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. That's, that, to me, is the Christmas story. Nothing is impossible with God. It's God's impossibilities on display. What I hope you realize today is that God often works the impossible in the most unlikely of circumstances. And I'm going to share some thoughts now that I, again, have said I deeply believe with you and have been kind of some of my own life direction over the years. Um, and I, I just pray that you begin to maybe grab a hold of some of these things I share with you and they begin to direct your, uh, your life as well as they've directed mine. So I'm going to read once again from Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 
38, 26 through 38, okay? And, and I, I read this a couple weeks ago. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version today. Last time I read it in NIV, New International Version. Some of you are going, whatever, you know. I, I just wanted to explain to you why it might seem a little bit different. The reason I'm reading it from this version this morning is I absolutely love how it's said and, and the implications that are, are, are there, okay? So listen to the scripture. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now here, verse 37. This is why I like this. For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? Yeah. Okay, thank you, Gar. Amen. For nothing will be impossible with God. There is nothing impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right. So Mary, in this account, becomes a recipient of a miracle-working God. She could do none of this on her own, of course. She probably didn't even conceive of, of any of this on her own. And she responds just with these words, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. May it be to me as you have, have said. And so we're going to look at this scripture. I'm going to use this scripture to kind of pull out the points today. But these points that I'm pulling out are things that I have firmly lived my life by. Amen? You're getting this? And so I'm using this scripture as kind of a, a context of the message today, but I'm pulling out some things that have been de deeply impactful for me as a follower of Jesus Christ. So the first thought that I, I bring forth from this scripture that I see in it is this. God works mightily in your weaknesses. God works mightily in your weaknesses. I, 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 I love what the Apostle Paul says in scripture so frequently. He's so blunt. He's so direct. I just love that. He gets right to the meat of, of, of issues. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, these words. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insult, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many of you delight in your weaknesses? How many say, good, I've been insulted? Great, I have to face a hardship. Perfect, I get to be persecuted. Because when you are weak, Christ is strong. That's what Paul says. When I am weak, then I am strong. I find it simply amazing in my own life that I've ended up doing what I've done here for 28 years. It wasn't ever on my radar as a young person. So when I was an infant, I didn't hear for a couple years. And that was a problem. When they discovered it, I wasn't speaking. And so I began this speech therapy. And I was in speech therapy as part of the school system all the way through fourth grade. And I remember taking two years to learn to say the word sandwich. I couldn't say sandwich. Sandwiches are good, aren't they? 
I love sandwiches. Every time I say the word sandwich today, I think of what I went through as a young person. I could not speak right because I had, I had missed that, that, that you know, development time in my life. So I avoided in my life, basically through all through high school, I would ask the first question, do they make you do speeches in this class? And if they did, guess what? I did not take that class. Amen? Because I was smart. I love math and sciences. I excelled at those. So I went to math and sciences, and that's where I, I threw myself into. So, you know, I'm not necessarily introverted or, nor extroverted, uh, but I just avoided it because I felt it was a glaring weakness in my life. In fact, the other day, Vicki was on the internet, and I saw this shirt. I got to just show this to you. This is great. Books, helping introverts avoid conversations since 1454. So that's when the printing press, I bought one. So if you see me wearing this, it's not that I don't love you. It's just I relate to this like crazy. Now, when I take those personality tests, I'm neither introverted nor extroverted. I end up right on the middle, whatever. In fact, I end up in the middle 2% of everything. And I remember first taking the test that Pastor Tim said I was dysfunctional. Because I should score one way or the other. I said, no, I think I'm just well balanced. <laughs> but at any rate, books. I just love it. Helping introverts avoid conversations since 1454. And that, that was kind of my attitude. I remember going into the engineering field, and I, I just said to Vicki at one point, I'd rather listen to machines whine than people whine. That's why I went into engineering. But little did I know there are people there too. So I had to learn that that was not necessarily the case. So it, it, when I'm 23 years old, um, God calls me into ministry. I started feeling that call. I kept thinking, that cannot be right. This cannot be right because this is just not, this is my weaknesses. Everything about it's my weaknesses. It's public speaking. I hate public speaking. You know, it's about all this depth of relationship and all that. And honestly, you know, I, I can be a good friend, but I can be alone too. You follow what I'm saying? Any of you relate to me on that? You're Norwegian. You relate some of you, don't you? I know you do because you don't say amen. You're super quiet. You know, I have to say, now lift your hands. Now say amen. That's pretty Scandinavian. That's all I got to say, folks. So I felt like God was calling me to be this proclaimer of his word and to be immersed in relationship with people. And I realized this calling's way beyond my human capability. It's not who I am. It's not natural for me. And I, I, I think I've lived out this idea that when I'm weak, he is strong. It, uh, this is way out of my comfort zone. It always is. It always feels that way. It, uh, if, you, if you get to know me much at all, especially in gatherings of people, I'm the quiet one, usually. I've learned to be more outgoing than I naturally am. I think God chose himself to be strong in our weaknesses. Why? Because we're greatly dependent on him. We realize, I can't do this myself. I have to rely on him. It's not something I can accomplish or I'm naturally gifted at. Um, now, when I'm saying weaknesses here. Let me give you some context. I'm referring more to your natural abilities and your talents, it, not necessarily to saying, well, I'm weak in this temptation. I give into the sin all the time. I'm not really talking about that right now, okay? I'm talking more about this idea of competency, of natural giftedness. Um, it's a realization at times in life, I just can't solve this problem. I don't have the wherewithal, the resources, or the intellect, or whatever might be the case, to solve this problem. Some of you know exactly what I mean. When your car breaks down, you have no idea what to do. Right? 
And you just say, I don't know what to do. It's beyond my capability, you know. And, and so this is what I'm talking about here with weaknesses. I'm saying it's beyond your natural abilities or resources. And, of course, with the case of Mary, that was definitely her story. She's weak. She's a teenage girl. She's pregnant, which is really would be frowned upon. And it's, everything about her story is one of her being weak, but God showing himself uh, to be strong. Um, and, and, and she's a, a young person, a teenager, and she's a woman in that culture. They would be viewed, those, those two things would make you viewed as weak. Okay? And so um, her whole story is one of, of God being strong, working in this humble, quote, societally weak person. I love the account of Peter's miraculous escape from prison in Acts chapter 12. I just love this account. Um, About this time in the history of the church, um, King Herod was unleashed. He started going crazy. He killed James, saw that that pleased the Jews, so he thought, I'll I'll throw Peter in prison and, you know, the curry more favor uh, of the Jews. And so Peter gets put into prison, and that's not a good thing. And and so the church began to earnestly pray uh, for Peter. Peter would in a position of weakness. He had no resources, no wherewithal, no way to get out of prison. He was totally at the mercy of King Herod and his strongmen. And so the night before he was to go to trial, an angel of the Lord appears to Peter. I just love this account. He doesn't tap him lightly in the shoulder and say, hey, bud, get up. He strikes him. We're told, bam, he hits him on the side. Kind of like some of your kids, you know, come in when you're sleeping at night and they just sit there and breathe. You go, ah, right when you wake up, dude. No, it's the kid that comes in and says, dad, get up. And they start pushing you. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know which one is worse personally, but they're both kind of bad. So Peter is struck in the side. He wakes up. And the chains miraculously fall off his wrists and his, and his ankles. He's unbound. The guards are oblivious. He's walking along. This angel says, follow me. And the door just opens. And there's no automatic door opener on it. Do you have any of those? We have those like crazy right now. And it just opens up. And he's thinking it's a vision. He says, this can't possibly be. I must be dreaming this. It must be a vision. And then he realizes, oh, I've been delivered. I've been delivered here. And so then he goes to the house of, uh, of, of, of John's mother, Mary. And many gathered there to pray for him. And he raps on the door, right? And this young servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door and, she, and you know, he's out there knocking on the door and she, she said, who's there? Peter. Ah! She runs back and tells everybody. And they don't believe her. They're working out the theology. It's got to be an angel, Peter. Can't be Peter, right? I mean, they're praying for Peter. Peter's at the door. Or can't be Peter. It's not that they have great faith. You seeing this? They're weak. They're dependent on God. They don't know what to do here, so they're praying. And Peter's, I can just see him. Come you know, answer the door. And they answer the door and they're overjoyed. And I look at that and I think, you know what? These people weren't necessarily knowing what they're doing. They weren't super strong theologically yet. What they did is in their weakness, in their lack of sufficiency, in their lack of resources, what were they? They were crying crying out to God and depending on God. And God did something miraculous because that's how God works. When we're weak, he is strong. My watch is starting to talk to me, so there you go. It thinks I should call 911. Do you ever get that? It looks like you've taken a hard fall. <laughs> and it won't let me turn it off. I get that a lot. I think it's an age thing. I, fr- I get this like three or four times a week. Have you fallen? No, I have not fallen. Sorry. I'm just going to. 
if, if they show up at the church, <laughs> 911 went through, even though I said no. Anyway, um, when you're weak, it's an opportunity to experience the strength of God. When we're incapable, friends, he's always capable. When we're lacking resources, he's resourceful. When all we can offer is our weakness, he's our strength. Okay, so that's the first point. That's the first takeaway I see here in the story of Mary in her exchange with the angel Gabriel. Uh, let's move on to a second point. A problem is frequently the pathway to the impossible. A problem is frequently a pathway uh, to uh, the impossible. Mary's pregnancy was problematic if, if you look at it from a worldly standpoint, but it led to the impossible, uh, the birth of Christ, and Christ has come and he's affected millions and millions of lives, right? Through, what, uh, through this young teenage woman who was faithful to God. As I opened the message today, I, I, I read some stuff from this podcast who talked once again about um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and we looked into that a couple weeks ago, but her barrenness was, was a problem that was a pathway to the impossible. I mean, if that didn't happen, I don't think they would view John as a miracle baby, and he was super impactful. Um, I wish life wasn't full of problems. I don't know about you. I don't ever say, life's going really good. God, would you send a problem my way? Anybody ever pray that? See, I want to give you something where you don't have to raise your hand to. Good, you did that. You know, I never ever say, God, I need some more problems. Send some more problems my direction. But every phase of life, friends, will be full of problems and challenges for us. It's the way life is. And they are frequently a pathway to the impossible. They are frequently a pathway to the impossible. As a young person in high school... Often you're just trying to figure out, you know, what clothes to wear and how to groom yourself, right? I'm not being demeaning here, you know, I'm talking personal experience, you know? And, 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 and I remember finding Jesus as a 13-year-old. And I don't know what I was doing in life. I honestly didn't know anything about what I was doing. But because I found Jesus and I gave my heart to Jesus, everything changed. And I had some direction that superseded my confusion, and my problems were always directing me back. I'll trust Christ. I don't know what to do here. I'll trust Christ. I don't know what's going to lie ahead of me. I'll trust Christ. And so frequently, that, that, that utter lostness feeling that you have, if it leads you to Jesus Christ, it's a pathway to the impossible. Amen? It's a pathway uh, to the impossible. Recently, there's been a craze. If you're a football fan, it's an annoying craze. About Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Oh, I've said it in church tonight. And by the way, uh, I don't really know anything about Taylor Swift other than she's the girlfriend of Travis Kelsey now. So I'm backwards for most people. A lot of people know Taylor Swift and they don't realize that Travis Kelsey is the tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, you know? And so uh, I'm watching what transpires there uh, between these two and how everybody's so enamored with this relationship. And I said to Vicky the other day, as we're watching all this stuff take place, I said, I'm being teleported back into high school. Oh no, they're the cool couple. Everybody wants to be like them. And they show a picture and Taylor Swift's up there in the booth with uh, Mahomes' wife. I don't know what her name is. It doesn't matter. And they're going high five and they're hugging each other. And I'm going, oh, it's high school. Oh no, I don't want to go back there. How about you? I've been to high school one time. That's enough for me. I don't want to watch in professional football. I want to watch football. But I guess it helped with ratings, so that's their ulterior motive, right? 
Then you get to college. You're 19 and 20 years old. You're being told to figure out your life. What do you think of that? Some of you are young, still. How do you figure out anything when you're 19 years old? I remember going to college. What are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. Started out as a math teacher. My mom talked me out of that. Then I ended up being an engineer. Why are you doing that? Oh, I don't know. I think it's good. I took an aptitude test and I just like this stuff. Machines whine, people whine. I'd rather listen to machines, right? Like I said. So, you know, it wasn't a real good decision making. But you know what I found? I found a group of people in, in, in college that loved the Lord Jesus Christ, that directed my life drastically. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what the future held, but I knew this I know Jesus. And I began to solidify that relationship with him, and it changed the trajectory of my life. It put me on the pathway, I think, to the impossible. Then you get married. <laughs> it just gets more complicated. People told me not to say it's a problem. Okay, so I'm not going to call it, now you have a new problem to a pathway to, you know, the impossible. Because that sounds demeaning, depending on which side of the marriage you're on, right? But, yeah, you're getting that. So I'm trying to wordsmith this so I don't hurt your feelings. Okay, because people told me first hour, well, you, told, you said marriage is a problem. I said, well, isn't it? It complicates your life, right? Before it was just like me. I did, I want to go play basketball. Cool, go. No one's going to stop me, right? I'm married. Can I go play basketball? You know what I mean? Yeah, it changes your life. Is this okay if I play basketball every day of my life for three hours every afternoon? Because that's what I did when we were first married. She said, do you think you play basketball a lot? I said, not really. Could be a blind spot, amen? She's not in church, that's why I'm saying this. But anyway, so you, you know, but then you know what? You, you, you get, can it be a pathway to the impossible when you get married? Yeah. Because you begin to, for the first time to say, I would genuinely want to love this person like Christ loves me. And you begin to put into practice some of those things of your faith. Will you actually become genuinely more concerned for their well-being than your own? Then you're on the way, my friend of the pathway to the impossible. You're beginning to see people like Christ sees them. And you can't do that without up close and personal, intimate relationships. You just can't do it any other way. It's not an academic exercise. It's real life that you need to live out at points. And I tell you, living with Vicki for 46 years has helped me to really become an unselfish person and to really put her needs sometimes before my own. And then you have kids. Oh, my goodness. I don't know why we think kids are so great. They're They're pain. They're a lot of work. They are a lot of work. And they get older, and they're still work. And they get up, then they have grandkids, and they're work. You follow what I'm saying? If you're an introvert and you just want to be by yourself and read a book, they're a lot of work. And I tell you, I have never prayed so hard in my life as I have for my kids. And I see them doing dumb things, and oh, Jesus, Jesus, help them. And I've been on my knees, and I've been weak, and I've been crying out to God, save these kids, help these kids, right? And you begin to see, God, only you can do some things in their life. They won't listen to me. They won't hear what I'm saying, even though I know I'm right. They have to figure some things out for themselves, and it becomes a very humbling, God-dependent kind of experience, but it's a pathway to the impossible. We're always going to have problems, is what I'm saying. And this brings us to the next point. This is something that I've really learned in my own life when it comes to following Jesus. And I think this is what we're seeing in the life of Mary and Joseph here in the Christmas story. You're not promised that following Jesus will produce problem-free life, but rather an extraordinary life. Following Jesus will not pr- 
provide, you know, this problem free existence. In fact, it might actually amp up the problems you face, but it'll be an extraordinary life. Jesus' birth and and, and that even illustrates this. So Jesus is born, right? And then King Herod goes crazy. He, he, wants, he kills all the babies in Bethlehem because he's trying to kill the Christ child. I often think of the song, Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And I'm thinking, but they killed all the babies in Bethlehem. I don't think they would be singing that song. Christ came and their town was filled with problems and tragedy. And you saw the kingdoms clash, right? And death came. And so what happens? Herod's trying to kill the Christ. What happens? Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt to get out of harm's way. Sometimes when you're following Christ, the problems don't go away. They just change. It's not that you have a problem for your life. You have an extraordinary life, a life in Christ, a right life. Sometimes we're going to have to have some Egypt experiences, friends, as we follow Christ. In fact, I think following Jesus in my life, sometimes it's brought on what I would call almost more problems because you've entered into the spiritual realm and you're dealing with problems of a different nature that maybe before you didn't even know that they were there. Now you're dealing with these other problems. You're dealing with this devil and you're dealing with your own sinful flesh and you're dealing with this world. I, I, I really have been enjoying reading um, John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. It's just a good book. And it kind of goes along with our false series, Winning the War in Your Mind. Um, it's a thicker book and much more uh, theologically uh, deep. And, he, and I, I got into this one part and he, he says, you know, you got to look at this, live no lies. You got to look at life from three different levels for the Christ follower. You're going to have three different levels of challenges. First of all, you got this devil that's, that's the father of lies, scripture says. So, so many things in culture are going to be lies that you got to do battle against these things. You can't let them become what govern your, your attitude and your direction in your life. And then he said, if that isn't bad enough, we have a sinful flesh. He says that, you know, the, the, the flesh, the, the fallen nature of humanity that wants to give in so easily to, to, to selfishness and, and to, to wrong kinds of, uh, you know, inputs and desires. And then if that isn't bad enough, we live in a world that is far gone where there is principalities and there's just wrong philosophies and ideologies and institutions that are, are there, that are there. You know, the worst lie I see is this. The worst lie I see is this. I'm trying to look at what time it is, sorry. Anyway, the worst lie that I think we see in culture right now is simply ignoring Christ. Simply pretending you don't he doesn't exist. Our government's trying to do that. So much of our institutions are trying to do that. You know, they're, they're just saying, live life without Jesus. Live as though he doesn't exist. And so what I see in Christians so frequently is you, you have this Sunday experience and you're confessing Christ and you live the rest of the week as a practicing atheist. Like Christ doesn't exist. And I think that's a tragedy. Um, in, 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 and so uh, we're never promised a problem-free life. We're promised an extraordinary life as a Christ follower. Listen to what Jesus uh, said here in Mark chapter 8. Um, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So pick up your cross means you pick up the burden that God has for you, and you follow hard after him. And in the case of Jesus Christ, it was literally going to the cross. But in our case, it might be a different kind of burden, a different kind of thing that you picked up, um, and and follow hard after him. Um, For me, like, this, this switch for me of going from 3M to here, that was gut-wrenching, guys. 
as the decision goes for me. It was not an easy decision to, to, to leave 3M, to leave the security of it all, leave that, you know, the, the, the position that I had, and then go into ministry. I, I remember just agonizing over that decision, just agonizing over it. I, but it was a burden that Christ calls you to carry, right? You getting this? And he said, pick up your cross, pick up your burden, pick up my calling, and you follow hard after me, and you never look back because the greatest adventure is the one that lies in, in, in front of you. One last takeaway from the count that I feel is vitally important here, is, and that is, I'm kind of leading into that. Trying to avoid risks in life can be the riskiest approach you can ever take. Risk is often the precursor to the impossible. Mary was asked to take a big risk here. She, you know, said, may it be done to me as you were to say. She's going to be misunderstood. She's a teenage girl in a culture that doesn't look kindly on, 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 on pregnancy um, it, like that, out, out of wedlock, so to speak. And she, was, she took the risk. Um, think about Joseph. I want you to think about Joseph. So here's this righteous Jew. He hears that his betrothed is pregnant. So he decides to do what's, you know, right in his eyes. I'm going to divorce her quietly. You know what he's doing? He's managing risk. He's managing risk there. Um, he, he's managing the damage, and he's worried about his image, right? How many times do we run into some kind of problem in our life, some kind of challenge in our life, or something's going on, and the first thought we have is not, Christ, what do you want to do with me in this situation? But we think, how do I manage the damage? How do I maintain the image here, right? And you think about Joseph. When he made that decision to take uh, Mary as his, as his wife, he was destroying his reputation. He could have lost some of his livelihood as people maybe no longer would do business with such a person. I mean, there was all kinds of risks. But because he took the risk, what did he experience? Jesus Christ in his life. And there's nothing comparable to that. Um, so oftentimes in life, we try to minimize risk, and that's the riskiest place you can ever be in. So when I'm at 3M, going back to that, and I'm taking, I get this opportunity and I have sensed God's call on my life for, for a decade at that point. I remember saying to Vicky one time in the quietness of a night when we're trying to do the decision, I said, if I do not do this now, I will never do it. Because it'll be, in my mind, too costly. I said, I just got to take the risk and trust God. It doesn't humanly make any sense. But I can't get rid of that burning sensation I'm supposed to do this take the risk. Now I look back at 28 years, I said, best choice I ever made. Sometimes the riskiest choice you can make is not to take the risks that God would have you take because you're going to miss out on what God has for your life. And what could have been, you don't get to experience. And so following hard after God, friends, will mean at points you will take a risk. And your friends around you may think you're crazy. It doesn't make any sense. I can't tell you how many conversations I had with people saying, why would you ever do that? You know, at the time I was making the change, my own family said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm mental. I'm, I'm not losing my mind, you know. And you have some of those kind of conversations. Listen, nothing is impossible with God. Amen? God works mightily in your weakness, whatever that is, because that can be a great dependency area in your life on him. Problems are frequently the pathway to the impossible. Do you ever see them that way? Once you get over the rawness and newness of it, Ask God to show you how this can be a pathway to the impossible. You're not promised that following Jesus will produce a problem for your life, but rather an extraordinary life. I personally opt for the extraordinary. How about you? I want extraordinary in my life. I, I, I don't want a problem for your life. I want to have the life I'm meant to have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and if you don't 
want to take risks, that may be the riskiest way to approach your life because you miss out on what God has for you. These are some takeaways I have from this encounter that we just read of Gabriel and Mary this morning. I pray that one of them blesses you. I'm going to pray now and turn it back over to the praise team. Would you bow your heads? Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for an opportunity just to share my heart for a few moments. I pray whatever you want each person in here to grab a hold of today, that that would be the case. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you fill in the gaps? Would you do a work that I can never do? Would you do the impossible in the lives of some of these folks? Would you just uh, bless them with your presence and your enablement, Holy Spirit? Just do, do enough, that in us which we cannot do in ourselves. And I want to just pray, Lord, that we would never try to manage you in our lives, but that we would realize that, Lord, um, oftentimes you're working in ways that we don't understand that in, when we're weak, when we feel inadequate, and we're so dependent, utterly dependent on you, Lord, that we have put ourselves in a position to see the impossible. And Lord, that problems are often a pathway to getting to that impossible. It's not the way I would ever take, Lord. Lord, it's not the course I would, I would choose, but frequently that's how you operate, Lord. And help us to realize that, Lord. Help us to realize that you have called us to an extraordinary life, a life of faith, of, of, of living in your name, not necessarily a problem-free life. Because when we become a Christ follower, Lord, we enter into the spiritual battle that's been going on for the ages. And we become part of that thing that's greater than ourselves. And so, Lord, I just pray that uh, we would never look at uh, our lives and wish that we didn't have any problems. But would they, they, I pray they'd be promptings, Lord, to depend on you more, uh, more than ever, Jesus. And I just pray that we'd be big risk takers. I, I think of Aaron, who's, as he takes over leading this church, I think the hardest thing to do when you get to a church of our size, Lord, at times, is the risk-taking part becomes so big in its implications. And would you grace him with just great intuition and insight, Lord, on, on direction and risks that we ought to take and ones that we ought not to take, Lord? That, I think, becomes some of the hardest moments of decision-making there are. But just grace him with courage and grace him with fortitude, Lord, and uh, grace him with wisdom. Thank you, Jesus, for this day, for this people of God here. I pray for all the ones listening online and all the ones listening in person today. May they take something away today that just changes how they do their life. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.